presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Employers know that providing supportive compensation benefit programs like paid leave in some cases can lead to mutual benefits of the employer employee through improved retention and recruitment of employees. For decades, companies on the free market have developed these programs that best fit their situation and interests. Before Colorado voters this November is a ballot initiative which considers implementing and running a government initiative which considers implementing and running a government-mandated run-paid family leave program. As parties continue to promulgate all sides of Proposition 118, it is of utmost importance to fully comprehend the costs, both direct and indirect. Today's conversation will help you learn the impacts of Proposition 118 and prepare to help you prepare to cast an informed vote in November. I'm extremely excited to welcome CSI Director of Policy and Research, Chris Brown, CSI Research Fellow, Lisa Strunk, I might add that she's a Nittany Lion. <laughs> Vice President of the State Federal and Government Affairs of Colorado Chamber, Lauren Furman. She's a transplant from Florida and a Seminole. <laughs> Chris and Lisa just co-authored a CSI report on Prop 118 and its potential impacts. Lauren Furman has spent over a decade with the Colorado Chamber. She holds a bachelor's and master's degree in political science Lauren's take on Prop 18 will be especially interesting as she lobbied extensively on paid leave legislation at the state capitol, that's SB 188, last year. So she has some insights that she can share with us that few others would know. Today's conversation will help you understand what's to come this fall, but you can also find CSI's latest report regarding this subject titled Proposition 118 a statewide paid family medical leave program for Colorado, but at what cost, question mark. It's on the CSI website, www.commonsenseinstituteco.org. Let's get started. This is really an important topic, and I'm especially interested because as a businessman and entrepreneur here in Colorado, I really want to understand what's going on here. So let me start with you, Lauren. This subject matter has been a hot topic in the public policy realm for the last few years. As I understand it, for the last eight years, I'm not certain exactly the eight or not, but it says with that. With your extensive background at the Capitol, could you explain a brief history and the attempts to pass paid leave legislation by the state legislature? Thank you, Earl, and thanks for having me here today. Really appreciate the opportunity. The creation of a statewide paid family medical leave program has been an incredibly controversial topic down at the state legislature for at least the last six years, and I'm sure going into eight years. But employers in Colorado, I will tell you, have always been supportive of trying to find a solution around a paid leave program. But what they've tried to do is find a solution that's not only affordable for workers, but also that actually provides the benefits that workers need, but works with how a business actually operates. Just in terms of the history of this legislation, for the last six years, 
It's been attempted. It has failed because it simply hasn't had enough support on both sides of the aisle down at the state capitol. And there are a couple reasons for its failure. Uh, number one, the program will cost up to $1.3 billion to run. The state doesn't have the money to fund a program like this, and it would require about 200 new government employees to run the program. So that's been one reason why it's been difficult to pass. The legislation over the years would require, and just like this ballot initiative, in order to pay for the program, workers across the state, every worker and every employer would have to pay for the program through a payroll tax. So that's really tough for legislators to stomach. Those legislators have been asked to vote on that huge cost burden that would be passed on to their constituents. And some of those constituents may never actually use those family leave benefits. Um, and just to add insult to injury, even with this tax that's going to be imposed, if the ballot initiative were to pass, there still may not be enough money to run this massive government program. So what does this mean? It means that Colorado voters are going to see even in higher tax in future years, or they may see those benefits reduced even after they've already paid into the program. So that's a variety of reasons as to why the legislation has failed. Some other reasons were because the business community and the proponents and the sponsors could not find consensus on a number of different things over the last six years. Aligning a paid state program with the current federal FMLA program, the Federal Medical and Leave Act program, has always been very important and has been a priority to the business community because they've been operating under that program for decades. They can easily administer the benefits if the requirements are the same or close to the same. So, for example, keep the benefits the same. Allow for some kind of exemption for small employers. Make sure the worker has been on the job for a certain period of time. The same period of time is what is required under federal law. And define who is eligible for the benefits so that it's not too expansive and so that it's not too expensive. This is the reason why this legislation has failed, because there hasn't been consensus on these types of factors for keeping the paid leave program affordable and for, for it to be manageable for employers to administer. Once you expand beyond those federal parameters, it just increases the cost and makes it that much harder. So, again, I would say the failure is not based on the partisan fights of the Capitol. It's just simply a very tough policy, tough program to pass. This legislation has been attempted when there was a split legislature, when Republicans controlled the Senate, Democrats controlled the House, but also when Democrats have controlled both chambers and the governor's office. It's just a very tough policy proposal. As I understand it, you know, we were a little bit involved, uh, Chris, in the, the SB 188 before. And Chris, you uh, you did some analysis, I believe, that you made available to the legislature. Some of that analysis suggested that this was a good way to put a program together that couldn't fund itself. Or if I read too much into the previous analysis and what it might have done to uh, cause the defeat of uh, SB 188. So the legislation in 2019, and I know Chris has done an amazing job on the economic analysis on this issue over the years. The 2019 legislation had a lot of issues. After it was introduced in the Senate, 
amended a few times, there still were not enough senators on board, which meant it would have died in the form it was in um, if the legislature, if the members in the Senate would have voted on that bill. So the Hail, Hail Mary of that bill was to amend it into a task force to study the issue, try to find a long-term solution. And the work that Chris and the team did at CSI indicated that there were substantial costs associated with this program and a very high utilization um, that wasn't estimated by Ledge Council staff. Well, Chris, I'm going to ask you to be more specific and and maybe take uh, with regards to SB 188 and the Prop 118. Are they one and the same? So all we're doing is getting a piece of legislation that failed that we're now sending out to the public to vote on, or is there some difference? Yeah, well, I think Lauren touched on some of the key points that in many ways, the legislation and the benefit program, the benefits that would be offered through this are very similar, Uh, would allow for 12 to up to 16 weeks of paid leave, has a progressive wage replacement scale that uh, is would be one of the highest level of benefits in the in the country. It covers both paid family related leave, that's for bonding for a newborn, caregiving for family, uh, but it also covers personal illness and injury under sort of a temporary disability, short-term disability type of of coverage. Um, But, you know, for our purposes and, and, and really where our focus has been, which is on the the financials, the, the solvency, the cost of this program, they did make some, you know, some interesting and significant changes. Specifically, the legislation last year, SB, Senate Bill 188, had an anticipated cost uh, in terms of that payroll tax, that wage premium that would fund this program was anticipated to be set at 0.64% of wages. Uh, And they put a cap at 0.99. Now, again, fast forward to Proposition 118 that will be in front of voters here in the next two months. And they anticipate that the cost of this program uh, would start out at 0.9% percent of wages, and they've uh, put a cap at 1.2%. So while the benefit structure remains very similar, we've already seen estimation that the cost would be higher than last year. Are you Uh, saying they increase increase the cap by a third? If you want to catch me on my math, but I think that's about right. Yeah, from point, well, little less than a third, little less than a third, from 0.99% to 1.2 would have, is, is how the cap changed. 20%. Got it. Yeah, 20%. All right. So they, apparently there was something good that came out of the study that the CSI did before, and that is that, hey, you could have a difficult time funding this. Lisa, clearly uh, you've got some expertise here that we want to tap into, a lot of expertise we want to tap into. You've looked at other states. Apparently a lot of other, not a lot, but some other states have uh, passed uh, similar legislation. And how do we compare in our 118 to what other states have done and and uh, what can we learn from them? Yeah, thank you so much, Earl, and for having me join this important conversation today. So most states at this point have adopted or considered paid family leave, 
there are only seven states, though, that have passed some type of family leave legislation, including California, and they were the first state to pass any type of paid family leave, and that was in 2004. But other states have passed legislation, including New Jersey, Rhode Island, New York, Hawaii, and most recently, Washington, D.C., and Washington State. It is important to note that some of these state programs also manage two separate paid leave benefit programs, and that's based on two types of claims, one related to temporary disability and personal sickness or injury, and a second related to caregiving claims, either for childbirth or for supportive care of family members. Proposition 118 essentially combines these two types of paid leave programs under one single program. Several of these states are similar in that they provide some form of partial wage replacement during paid family leave. However, they differ in their duration, their funding mechanism, their benefit amount, their job protection, and what constitutes a qualifying event. While these programs in these states are comparable in some ways, the program proposed under Proposition 118 stands out as offering a greater level of benefits across several areas. Colorado will offer a 90% wage replacement rate, which is much higher than the states that we used for comparison in our report, which was California, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. And their wage replacement ranges from 60% to 85% in those states. In terms of length of leave, Colorado will offer 12 to 16 weeks of leave, which is more than some of the other states that we looked at. And Colorado also has a higher max benefit among those states of $1,100, which is higher than, than some of those we looked at. So based on some of these programmatic specifics, if this passes, then Colorado will offer one of the most generous paid leave programs in the nation. So you're telling me that we've set the gold standard for family leave. Correct. And by setting the gold standard for family leave, I, I guess the question comes down to, well, I'm just an employer. I just, you know, just we just go out and build a business and hire people. So uh, who pays for this? How does this program get paid for? Chris, Lisa, come on, chime in. Tell me how it gets paid for. I'm happy to tackle that one. To pay for the program, the new premium would be imposed on all Colorado payroll. Uh, employers and employees would share the cost 50-50. So 50% being paid by the employer and 50% by the employee. Time out, time out, time out. Now, I've got short-term disability. I've got sick leave pay. I've got, uh, you know, special contingent things that are available to staff member. So does this get added on top of plans I already have in place for my for my staff? Earl, I think the questions you're asking are the same kind of questions employers across the state have been asking, and I think get to Lauren's, you know, questions on on the challenges of a universal statewide program is, will they be layered on top, I think is a question that you and other employers will have to answer. It won't necessarily layer on top because these would be required uh, as a starting point. And then I think employers would have discretion over how and at what cost you could add additional benefits as needed or as, you know, were still feasible. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute Lisa, Chris, and, and Lauren. Just, just, I'm perplexed here. Um, if our company has a three-month pregnancy leave situation or newborn or adoption, and we pay 100% of that for the, per, for the person for three months, or we pay 75, and your study says that 
for people in the higher income range, they would get some, something significantly less than their salary. Are you telling me that I can substitute this program and pay my staff less now because the state is in essence said this is a program I have to have? That doesn't make sense to me. I'll, I'll jump in there, and I think Lauren, had, you know, maybe if you've had these conversations with other organizations, I think your insight would be helpful. But I think, you know, as a starting point, you would have to, and employers would be required to pay into this program, and the benefits would be set by the state, the formula in the proposition, and as you pointed out, uh, workers uh, who fall on the higher uh, wage replacement scale will ultimately get paid much less, uh, much less than the hundred percent that you, you know, that you say your firm currently offers. So uh, it's a, it's a question of whether or not uh, and to what extent, again, could continue to afford those higher level of benefits in addition to what the state program is mandating. But, but again, I think every employer, as you point out, will be dealing with this question to, to different degrees. Seems to me like we're double dipping here, but go ahead, Lauren. Well, you've identified the biggest dilemma that we have experienced at the legislature with this legislation. Many companies across the state actually offer even better programs than what the state program would offer to workers. And what will happen is because the way the legislation or the ballot initiative has been drafted, the language says that an employer is exempt only if they have 100% of the same benefits as what is outlined in that language. So let's just say they offer a policy and it's a Cadillac plan, but it's not exactly lined up to what this ballot initiative says. So, for instance, they may offer PTO for their employees. They may offer vacation. They may offer flexible leave, sick leave. They may offer a, a combination of all of those things and pay 100% of those benefits for those employees. Well, guess what's going to happen? A mandate like this means that employers are going to either drop some of those benefits that they already offer, or they're going to say, you know what, we're going to cut back in other ways. We're going to cut back in health insurance benefits, retirement benefits, or we're going to reduce pay. Somehow they're going to have to pay for this program, and it may not necessarily be what they have already been offering, 100% paid to those employees right now. Well, I, I want to get to the, the issue of costs and claims and all the really terrific work you did. And but before I get to that, and, and I don't mean to be boring here on the, to stay on this topic, but I'll chance it. Let's assume that if I've read your report correctly, they've got 12 to 14 weeks in which they can take family leave. Is that right, Lisa? Yes, that's correct. And, and if I read this correctly too, Chris, if uh, they can also take two weeks of sick leave on top of that too. Is that correct? I think you're referring to the the current or the new state mandate for paid sick leave. So the state, separate to this program entirely, uh, this past legislative session uh, passed a mandate on employers, all employers, to cover 100% of employees' wages or up to, uh, it would accrue over a certain number of, you know, amount of time, but up to 48 hours, over two weeks of uh, sick leave. And the way that Proposition 118 is worded is 
it, it uh, employers could not require their employees to take other leave. Um, and so they're prior to, to taking this and therefore, you know, could take the sick leave on top and then the, the paid leave benefit following it. So How again, about vacation? Could, vacation? could vacation be added to that too, Chris? In other words, they couldn't forfeit their vacation? Correct. You cannot be forced to use your vacation uh, as, uh, as paid leave time. Correct. So we're talking about 12 to 14 weeks. We're taking sick leave, and then we're taking maybe two to three weeks of vacation. Let's see if I've got that right. We're talking about, you know, better part of a year. And is this something that somebody uh, can only take once every five years, Chris and Lisa, or is this something – they could take every year. Yeah, no, you can. The, the you can take paid leave for the full amount of the benefit within a you know rolling twelve month period. So effectively, every year you're eligible to take the paid leave benefit. Hmm. But let me just take my last question: the mechanics here, Lauren. You're saying that this is going to be something that will be a government run program. So are we, are we talking about the possibility that any member of our listening group staff could say, I want to take a paid leave? They just call down to the state you know, family leave office and say, my Aunt Teresa is not feeling well in, in Trenton, New Jersey, and I need to go help her. And uh, so they, they can say, well, sure, go help your Aunt Teresa. And she may or may not be at her desk the next day when I come in to ask her where she is? So the answer to that is two parts. The individual worker would submit a request through the Department of Labor and Employment through this individual, this division under the Department of Labor, request the leave, provide the rationale for the leave, and then the Department of Labor would review that request, approve it or deny it, in the legislation, there were there was a provision that required at least seven days in which they would notify the employer that the leave was approved or denied. Chris or Lisa might know the answer to this as to whether that language is actually in the ballot initiative of the time frame of when an employer would be advised. I was also just going to add that the qualifying reasons for taking the leave and have to include um, caring for a newborn or family member or for personal medical issues. So there are some, some language around what constitutes a qualifying event. Okay. Well, it seems to me that uh, as an employer, you're basically depending upon the government having a pretty good uh, handle on this as to how they're going to do it. And we have to figure that out as to how we might see running our companies in the future and, and staffing our companies. Well, uh, enough of my whining. Lisa, in the recent, most recent report, uh, you mentioned the claims rate, average weeks of leave, administrative costs. How did you get these three different scenarios for, for all this modeling? So we based our model on the claims rates and the average length of leave uh, for, it was based on a couple of different studies that have been done on this topic over the last few years. Uh, one of them being the University of Denver study. And we also based it on uh, some other states with established programs that have utilization data, uh, particularly in California, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. What we are calling our low scenario uh, has a claims rate of 5%, an average weeks of leave of 9 and admin cost of 6%. Uh, those assumptions came from the DU study 
but the admin costs that we're estimating there came out of the uh, task force that was formed uh, last year. There were a number of different reports that came out of that task force, and uh, one of them had cited an admin cost of 6%. Uh, in the middle scenario where the claims rate was 7%, we had an average weeks of leave of 10 and admin costs are 8%. Uh, the claims rate that we came up with there came also from the task force. And then we based the other values on uh, some of the other research in the other states. We also included a high scenario where we had a 9% claims rate, 11.5 weeks of leave and a 10.6 admin cost. We believe that since the level of benefits that are proposed in Prop 118 is greater than some of the other existing programs with the history of claims, it's very likely that this level of claims will be higher than some of the other states. So that's why we use the 9%. Uh, we based the uh, higher scenarios admin costs on the current unemployment insurance program that is run by the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment, since this program will also be managed by that same uh, same department. Just to go back to a previous comment I made. So you think because we have a gold standard and we're paying out 90% uh, up to a certain level, I get, believe it's 67, I believe it's $67,000, uh, that uh, it'll, it's more likely that it's going to be utilized more than other states that have a lesser uh, attractive program. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Okay. Well, what's the consequence of that? Uh, so, you know, I think that obviously if we're, you know, one of the major drivers of, of the overall cost of this is goes back to utilization. So how many people will be really utilizing the program is really what the major cost driver is. So with that comes higher costs. And um, in the start of the program, uh, when the premium is set in 2023 and 2024 at 0.9%, uh, we believe that if there's a claims rate that's above the 6.2%, and let's say that the length of leave is above the 9.5 weeks, then those premiums collected will not be sufficient to cover the benefits. The risk of, of you know, the higher utilization, um, you know, then the higher costs associated with this and at some point, you know, we want to make sure that we are able to cover all of those various, those costs. So we want to make sure that we don't go insolvent in the program. What can happen after the first two years is the premium can rise to 1.2%. And so, you know, the legislature has the ability to, you know, if people are utilizing that more, that they can change that 1.2%. So obviously there will be higher costs associated with this. Now, wait, oh, hold on. The legislature has the right to do what? So they can change that 1.2% if they believe that the program is being utilized more. Hold on a second. So in effect, you're telling me as a taxpayer that if somehow our gold standard gets utilized more than, than your numbers would suggest, and I guess kind of matches up with regard to utilization rate in Rhode Island, if I remember correctly, you're telling me that if they want, they could take it up to 13%. Or 1.3 or 1.4 or 1.5, whatever it takes to, to cover the cost of people using the program as it's been designed. Is that what I hear you say? Yes. Lauren, tell me now, if you're up there at the state legislature, is that just kind of a, something they won't do? They'll just say, people, stop, stop using the program. We're going to make it less attractive. 
What do you think the outcome will be if if people start utilizing it more than uh, than anticipated on our high end? Which, frankly, from my own perspective, I think that's going to happen. I think the proponents have a real dilemma on their hands. They want to create a pro- pro- program that's a Cadillac program, but they're hoping that only a small percentage of workers actually use the program. So it's a real problem because, as Lisa has indicated, there may not be enough money to fund it. And legislators, as you have seen over the last six years, really had concerns with this issue in and of itself and going to their constituents and asking them to increase taxes on their payroll is a really hard nut to swallow for legislators. So I think it's going to be a real dilemma. And I think what you're seeing played out right now is a perfect example is the unemployment insurance program. Our unemployment insurance program is broke. It's broke because of the current pandemic and the current economic crisis. And it's through no fault of employers, through no fault of the Department of Labor, but this is a perfect example of a program, a state-funded, a state-run program that doesn't have enough money to provide benefits to unemployed workers. And when it's insolvent, that means employers are going to have to pay more in premiums. So that's exactly what could happen with this paid leave program. Too many folks use it, not enough money to pay for it. Either you reduce the benefits or you increase the tax, or you just hope that nobody uses it. Well, Chris, you, you, you and uh, Lisa have done this hard analysis on this and uh, just honestly assess, assess this, if you would, please. What do you see as the cost to the employer here in Colorado? And what do you see as to the cost of, of just the state of a program like this? Is this something that uh, maybe we ought to uh, give some additional thought to? Or am I just being overly kind of uh, nervous Nelly as an employer here in the state of Colorado trying to figure out how in the world do I cover this cost as well as staff with something like this? You know, to give you a sense of not just the numbers, but sort of the range as given the uncertainty in this, the degree to which the program would be used, you know, really does influence the cost to give you a sense of the range of of impacts that we, again, I think really precipitated this work to, to provide voters a stronger sense I mean, of, of the true cost. I think the biggest difference, aside from the details of the program, and it's, it's quite obvious, but the biggest difference between Senate Bill 188 and Proposition 118 is the fact that this is going before voters. This is not going before elected officials and our elected representatives. And so, again, we wanted to detail the costs of this. Uh, I think people very generally and very, you know, can conceptualize and understand the potential benefits. But uh, thus far, the costs have not really been fully flushed out. And for the individual, for the employee, our range suggested that uh, would, the, the premium would be an effective you know, income uh, related tax of between eight and 20%. So think of the state's income tax going up by nearly 10% to nearly 20% as a result of this. Um, the, from an employer standpoint, the tax increase, uh, the cost increase relative to the state's existing corporate, uh, corporate income tax would actually be far more significant. 
in, in our middle scenario, our mid-range scenario in 2025, the uh, additional premium payments from employers uh, across the state represented a, a little over 200% increase in, you know, so you could say the effective corporate income tax, more than doubling, essentially more than doubling the uh, existing corporate income, so tripling the, the existing corporate income tax. The, the cost of this is quite significant from a direct standpoint. And, you know, I think people should recognize like their health insurance, like other insurance products that we've seen continue to go up and up and up. You know, it's very similar, this program and the, the degree to which we would expect uh, the premiums to, to need to continue to increase would, would be very similar. So Lisa, you're, if I read your study correctly, uh, at a salary of 50, a wage of $50,000 for an employee at the high end, if we think that that could occur, you're talking about a premium that the state would in essence approve of $1,858 per person. And that seems to me you're talking about a, a significant cut into somebody's uh, wages to pay for this program. Do they have a choice to opt out of it? No, this is a requirement. Um, so if you are an employer and you and you have 10 or more employees, then you are required to pay. Chris, so the employees required to pay that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So huh. Earl, I wanted to. So I, I may, I may, may be a single individual, and uh, you know, if it's other than my aunt uh, Teresa or Uncle Uncle Joe, I may not have anybody else I care about, and a low likelihood of needing a family leave, other than maybe sick leave or something like that, or vacations. This is imposed on me, Lauren. I guess my final question to you is, in light of. Uh, of what you see here, and and uh, you're you're with the chamber. In light of the uh, generosity of this plan, I would guess you're probably going to find a lot of uh, corporations really excited to come to the state. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to be too excited with this type of program if it does pass on the ballot. But um, you know, I think this is going to be tough for a lot of companies, especially those small companies. Um, and we're not talking just the small companies or ten or less. We're still talking about companies somewhere between 10 employees up to 25 to 50 employees. And it's not that they don't want to provide benefits to their employees. It's because some, those larger companies do. And like I described, they offer something better, but it may just not be the perfect language in their policy that is in this ballot initiative. And then you have those midsize, and I would call even small employers above 10, that cannot operate their business if somebody is gone from 12 to 16 weeks. So they may be interested in our neighboring states for places to locate that might, they might not have to um, deal with these types of challenges of a program like this. Chris, Lauren, Lisa, are there any final words you'd like to to share with our listeners today? I was just going to say that, you know, given the way that the legislation is crafted now, um, there's currently no mechanism to reduce benefits or a way to mediate the rising program costs. So while insolvency we see in the study is less of a risk from the standpoint that the legislature is likely to be able to raise the cap of the premium, the rising program cost then is significant. So our hope is that with doing this study that we're able to show voters, employers, and business leaders 
um, the estimates um, so that they can weigh in on those benefits um, with more of an understanding of um, the, the various potential costs out there. Lauren, any closing comments, please? And I do want to thank, you know, CSI, Chris and Lisa and the team for putting the study together. Those are just so important for getting the message out. And I just recommend listeners do do your homework on Prop 118. Read closely the details of this ballot initiative. Get educated on how it's going to be funded. It's got a financial impact on all of us, and it could fail to the detriment of those that it's actually trying to help. So do your homework. Try to be educated on what this actually says and does uh, before voting on something, a, a big um, program like this, a very large, costly program like this. And uh, we're proposing you do your homework by looking at the study and, and at least look at the summary. You can take a look at the entire study. It's quite insightful. Thank you, everybody. You were terrific. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.